The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. program of science fiction and fantasy. I am your host, Beverly Prentice. I hope you enjoy the program. If so, please drop a line to beyond3x5 at gmail.com. The Last Question by Isaac Asimov. The last question was asked for the first time, half in jest, on May 21, 2061, at a time when humanity first stepped into the light. The question came about as a result of a $5 bet over highballs, and it happened this way. Alexander Adele and Bertram Lupov were two of the faithful attendees of Multivac. As well as any human beings could, they knew what lay behind the cold, clicking, flashing face, miles and miles of face of that giant computer. They had at least a vague notion of the general plan of relays and circuits that had long since grown past the point where any single human could possibly have a firm grasp of the whole. Multivac was self-adjusting and self-correcting. It had to be, for nothing human could adjust and correct it quickly enough, or adequately enough. So Adele and Lupoff attended the monstrous giant only lightly and superficially, yet as well as any men could. They fed it data, adjusted questions to its needs, and translated the answers that were issued. Certainly they, and all others like them, were fully entitled to share in the glory that was Multivax. For decades, Multivac had helped design the ships and plot the trajectories that enabled man to reach the moon, Mars, and Venus. But past that, Earth's poor resources could not support the ships. Too much energy was needed for the long trips. Earth exploited its coal and uranium with increasing efficiency, but there was only so much of both. But slowly Multivac learned enough to answer deep questions more fundamentally, and on May 14, 2061, what had been theory became fact. The energy of the sun was stored, converted, and utilized directly on a planet-wide scale. All Earth turned off its burning coal, its fissioning uranium, and flipped the switch that connected all of it to a small station, one mile in diameter, circling the Earth at half the distance of the moon. All Earth ran by invisible beams, of sun power. Seven days had not sufficed to dim the glory of it, and Adele and Lupov finally managed to escape from the public functions and to meet in quiet, where no one would think of looking for them, in the deserted underground chambers where portions of the mighty buried body of Multivac showed. Unattended, idling, sorting data with contented lazy clickings. Multivac, too, had earned its vacation, and the boys appreciated that. They had no intention originally of disturbing it. They had brought a bottle with them, and their only concern at the moment was to relax in the company of each other and the bottle. 
It's amazing when you think of it, said Adele. His broad face had lines of weariness in it, and he stirred his drink slowly with a glass rod, watching the cubes of ice slur clumsily about. All the energy we can possibly ever use for free. Enough energy, if we wanted to draw on it, to melt all earth into a big drop of impure liquid iron and still never miss the energy so used. All the energy we could ever use, forever and forever and forever. Lupov cocked his head sideways. He had a trick of doing that when he wanted to be contrary. And he wanted to be contrary now, partly because he had had to carry the ice and glassware. Not forever, he said. Oh, hell, just about forever, till the sun runs down, Bert. That's not forever. All right, then. Billions and billions of years. Ten billion, maybe. Are you satisfied? Lupov put his fingers through his thinning hair as though to reassure himself that some was still left, and sipped gently at his own drink. Ten billion years isn't forever. Well, it will last our time, won't it? So would the coal and uranium. All right, but now we can look, we can hook up each individual spaceship to the solar station, and it can go to Pluto and back a million times without ever worrying about fuel. You can't do that on coal and uranium. Ask Multivac if you don't believe me. I don't have to ask Multivac, I know that. Then stop running down what Multivac's done for us, said Adele, blazing up. It did all right. Who said it didn't? What I say is that a sun won't last forever. That's all I'm saying. We're safe for ten billion years, but then what? Lupoff pointed a slightly shaky figure at the other. And don't say we'll switch to another sun. There was silence for a while. Adele put his glass to his lips only occasionally, and Lupov's eyes slowly closed. They rested. Then Lupov's eyes snapped open. You're thinking we'll switch to another sun when ours is done, aren't you? I'm not thinking. Sure you are. You're weak on logic, that's a trouble with you. You're like the guy in the story who was caught in a sudden shower and who ran to a grove of trees and got under one. He wasn't worried, you see, because he figured when one tree got wet through, he would just get under another one. I get it, said Adele. Don't shout. When the sun is done, the other stars will be gone, too. Darn right they will, muttered Lupoff. It all had a beginning in the original cosmic explosion, whatever that was. And it, it'll all have an end when all the stars run down. Some run down faster than others. Hell, the giants won't last a hundred million years. The sun will last ten billion years, and maybe the dwarfs will last two hundred billion for all the good they are. But just give us a trillion years and everything will be dark. Entropy has to increase to maximum. That's all. I know all about entropy, said Adele, standing on his dignity. The hell you do. I know as much as you do. Then you know everything's got to run down someday. All right, who says they won't? You did, you poor sap. You said we had all the energy we needed forever. You said forever. It was Adele's turn to be contrary. Maybe we can build things up again someday, he said. Never. Why not someday? Never. Ask Multivac. You ask Multivac. I dare you. Five dollars says it can't be done. Adele was just drunk enough to try, just sober enough to be able to phrase unnecessary symbols and operations into a question which in words might have corresponded to this. 
Will mankind one day, without the net expenditure of energy, be able to restore the sun to its full youthfulness, even after it had died of old age? Or maybe it could be put more simply like this. How can the net amount of entropy of the universe be massively decreased? Multivac fell dead and silent. The slow flashing of lights ceased. The distant sounds of clicking relays ended. Then, just as the frightened technicians felt they couldn't hold their breath longer, there was a sudden springing to life of the teletype attached to the portion of Multivac. Five words were printed. Insufficient data for meaningful answer. No bet, whispered Lupov. They left hurriedly. By next morning, the two plagued with throbbing head and cottony mouth had forgotten the incident. Jared, Geraldine, and Gerardette one and two watched the starry picture in the visiplate change as the passage through hyperspace was completed in its non-time lapse. At once, the even powdering of stars gave way to the predominance of a single bright shining disk the size of a marble centered on the viewing screen. That's X-23, said Gerard confidently. His thin hands clamped tightly behind his back and the knuckles whitened. The little Gerardettes, both girls, had experienced the hyperspace passage for the first time in their lives and were self-conscious over the momentary sensation of inside-outness. They buried their giggles and chased one another wildly about their mother, screaming, We've reached X-23, we've reached X-23, we've... Quiet, children, said Geraldine sharply. Are you sure, Jared? What is there to be but sure? asked Jared, glancing up at the bulge of featureless metal just under the ceiling. It ran the length of the room, disappearing through the wall at either end. It was as long as the ship. Jared scarcely knew a thing about the thick rod of metal except that it was called a microvac, that one asked it questions if one wished, that if one did not, it still had its task, guiding the ship to a pre-ordered destination, of feeding on energies from the various subgalactic power stations, of computing the equations for the hyperspatial jumps. Herod and his family had only to wait and live in the comfortable residence quarters of the ship. Someone had once told Jared that the AC at the end of Microvac stood for Automatic Computer in Ancient English. But he was on the edge of forgetting even that. Geraldine's eyes were moist as she watched the visiplate. I can't help it. I feel funny about leaving Earth. Why, for peace's sake, demanded Jared. We had nothing there. We'll have everything on X-23. You won't be alone. You won't be a pioneer. There are over a million people on the planet already. Good Lord, our great-grandchildren will be looking for new worlds because X-23 will be overcrowded. Then, after a reflective pause, I tell you, it's a lucky thing the computers worked out interstellar travel the way the race is growing. I know, I know, said Geraldine miserably. Gerardette, I said promptly. Our microvac is the best microvac in the world. I think so, too, said Jared, tousling her hair. It was a nice feeling to have a microvac of your own, and Jared was glad he was part of his generation and no other. In his father's youth, the only computers had been tremendous machines taking up a hundred square miles of land. There was only one to a planet. Planetary ACs, they were called. 
They had been growing in size steadily for a thousand years, and then, all at once, came refinement. In place of transistors had come molecular valves, so that even the largest planetary AC could be put into a space only half the volume of a spaceship. Jared felt uplifted, as he always did, when he thought that his own personal microvac was many times more complicated than the ancient and primitive multivac that had first tamed the sun, and almost as complicated as Earth's planetary, AC, the largest, that had first solved the problem of hyperspatial travel and had made trips to the stars possible. So many stars... So many planets, sighed Geraldine, busy with her own thoughts. I suppose families will be going out to new planets forever the way we are now. Not forever, said Jared with a smile. It will all stop some day, but not for billions of years, maybe billions. Even the stars run down, you know. Entropy must increase. What's entropy, Daddy? shrilled Gerodet too. Entropy, little sweet, is just a word which means the amount of running down of the universe. Everything runs down, you know, like your little walkie-talkie robot, remember? Can't you just put in a new power unit, like with my robot? The stars are the power units, dear. Once they're gone, there are no more power units. Gerodine won at once set up a howl. Don't let them, Daddy, don't let the stars run down. Now look what you've done, whispered Geraldine, exasperated. How was I to know it would frighten them? Jared whispered back. Ask the Mike whale, Jared, at one. Ask him how to turn the stars on again. Go ahead, said Geraldine. It will quiet them down. Jaredette, too, was beginning to cry also. Jared shrugged. Now, now, honeys, I'll ask Worry, he'll tell us. He asked, adding quickly, print the answer. Jared cut the strip, or a thin cellufilm, and said cheerfully, See now, the microwave says it will take care of everything when the time comes, so don't worry. Geraldine said, and now, children, it's time for bed. We'll be in our new home soon. Jared read the words on the cellufilm again before destroying it. Insufficient data for meaningful answer. He shrugged and looked at the visiplate. X-23 was just ahead. VJ-23X of Lameth stared into the black depths of the three-dimensional, small-scale map of the galaxy and said, Are we ridiculous, I wonder, in being so concerned about the matter? MQ-17J of Nikron shook his head. I think not. You know the galaxy will be filled in five years at the present rate of expansion. Both seemed in their early twenties. Both were tall and perfectly formed. Still, said VJ-23X, I hesitate to submit a pessimistic report to the Galactic Council. I wouldn't consider any other kind of report. Stir them up a bit. We've got to stir them up. VJ-23X sighed. Space is infinite. A hundred billion galaxies are there for the taking. More. A hundred billion is not infinite, and it's getting less infinite all the time. Consider, 20,000 years ago, mankind first solved the problem of utilizing stellar energy, and a few centuries later, interstellar travel became possible. It took mankind a million years to fill one small world, and then only 15,000 years to fill the rest of the galaxy. Now the population doubles every ten years. BJ-23X interrupted. We can thank immortality for that. Very well. Immortality exists and we have to take it into account. I admit it has its seamy side, this immortality. 
The galactic AC has solved many problems for us, but in solving the problem of preventing old age and death, it has undone all its other solutions. Yet you wouldn't want to abandon life, I suppose. Not at all, snapped MQ-173, softening it at once to, Not yet. I'm by no means old enough. And how old are you? 223. And you? I'm still under 200. But to get back to my point, population doubles every 10 years. Once this galaxy is filled, we'll have filled another in 10 years. Another 10 years and we'll have filled two more. Another decade, four more. In 100 years, we'll have filled a thousand galaxies. In a thousand years, some million galaxies. In ten thousand years, the entire known universe. Then what? V123X, VJ23X said, As a side issue, there's a problem of transportation. I wonder how many sun power units it will take to move galaxies of individuals from one galaxy to the next. A very good point. Already, mankind consumes two sun power units per year. Most of it's wasted. After all, our own galaxy alone pours out a thousand sun power units a year, and we only use two of those. Granted, but even with a hundred percent efficiency, we only stave off the end. Our energy requirements are going up in a geometric progression, even faster than our population. We'll run out of energy even sooner than we run out of galaxies. A good point. A very good point. We'll just have to build new stars out of interstellar gas. Or out of dissipated heat? asked MQ-17J sarcastically. There may be some way to reverse entropy. We ought to ask the galactic AC. VJ23X was not really serious, but MQ171 pulled out his AC contact from his pocket and placed it on the table before him. I've half a mind to, he said. It's something the human race will have to face someday. He stared somberly at its small AC contact. It was the only two inches cubed and nothing in itself but it was connected through hyperspace with the great galactic AC that served all mankind. Hyperspace considered it was an integral part of the galactic AC. MQ-17J paused to wonder if someday in his immortal life he would get to see the galactic AC. It was on a little world of its own, a spider webbing of force beams holding the matter within which surges of submissons took the place of the old clumsy molecular valves. Yet despite its sub-etheric workings, the galactic AC was known to be a full thousand feet across. MQ-17J asked suddenly of his AC contact, Can entropy ever be reversed? VJ23X looked startled and said at once, Oh, say, I didn't really mean to have you ask that. Why not? We both know entropy can't be reversed. You can't turn smoke and ash back into a tree. Do you have trees on your world? asked MQ17J. The sound of the galactic AC startled them into silence. Its voice came thin and beautiful out of the small AC contact on the desk. It said, There is insufficient data for a meaningful answer. VJ23X said, See? The two men thereupon returned to the question of the report they were to make to the Galactic Council. Z-Prime's mind spanned the new galaxy with a faint interest in the countless twists of stars that powered it. 
He'd never have ever seen this one before. Would he have ever seen them all? So many of them, each with its load of humanity, but a load that was almost a dead weight. More and more the real essence of men was to be found out here, in space. Minds, not bodies. The immortal bodies remained back on the planets in suspension over the cons. Sometimes they roused for material activity, but that was growing rarer. Few new individuals were coming into existence to join the incredibly mighty throng. But what matter? There was little room in the universe for new individuals. Z Prime was roused out of his reverie upon coming across the wispy tendrils of another mind. I am Z Prime, said Z Prime. And you? I am D Sub One. Your galaxy? We call it only the galaxy. And you? We call ours the same. All men call their galaxy their galaxy and nothing more. Why not? True, since all galaxies are the same. Not all galaxies. On one particular galaxy, the race of man must have originated. That makes it different. C Prime said, "On which one?" I cannot say. The Universal AC would know. Shall we ask him? I am suddenly curious. Z Prime's perceptions broadened until the galaxies themselves shrank and become a new, more diffuse powdering on a much larger background. So many hundreds of billions of them, all with their immortal beings, all carrying their load of intelligences, with minds that drifted freely through space, and yet one of them was unique. Among them all, in being the original galaxy, one of them had, in its vague and distant past, a period when it was the only galaxy populated by man. Z Prime was consumed with curiosity to see this galaxy, and he called out, "Universal AC, on which galaxy did mankind originate?" The universal AC heard, for on every world and throughout space, it had its receptors ready, and each receptor led through hyperspace to some unknown point, where the universal AC kept itself aloof. Z Prime knew of only one man whose thoughts had penetrated within sensing distance. Of universal AC, and he reported only a shining globe, two feet across. Difficult to see, but how can that be all of Universal AC? Z Prime had asked. Most of it had been the answer is hyperspace. In what form it is there, I cannot imagine, nor could anyone, for the day had long passed since Z Prime knew when any man had any part of the making of a Universal AC. Each universal AC designed and constructed its successor. Each, during its existence of a million years or more, accumulated the necessary data to build a better, and more intricate, more capable successor, in which its own store of data and individuality would be submerged. The universal AC interrupted Z Prime's wandering thoughts, not with words, but with guidance. Z Prime's mentality was guided into the dim sea of galaxies, and one in particular enlarged into stars. A thought came, infinitely distant, but infinitely clear. This is the original galaxy of man, but it was the same after all, the same as any other. And Lee Prime stifled his disappointment. D Sub One, whose mind had accompanied the other, said suddenly, "And is one of these stars the original star of man?" The Universal AC said, 
Man's original star has gone nova. It is a white dwarf. Did the men upon it die? Asked Lee Prime, startled and without thinking. The universal AC said, A new world, as in such cases, was constructed for their physical bodies in time. Yes, of course, said Z Prime, but a sense of loss overwhelmed him even so. His mind released its hold on the original galaxy of man, let it spring back and lose itself among the blurred pinpoints. He never wanted to see it again. D Sub One said, What is wrong? The stars are dying. The original star is dead. They must all die. Why not? But when all energy is gone, our bodies will finally die, and you and I with them. It will take billions of years. I do not wish it to happen even after billions of years. Universal AC, how many stars be kept from dying? Sub one said in amusement, You're asking how entropy might be reversed in direction. And the universal AC answered, There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Z-Prime's thoughts fled back to his own galaxy. He gave no further thought to Sub one whose body might be waiting on a galaxy a trillion years away, or on the star next to Z-Prime's own. It didn't matter. Unhappily, Z-Prime began collecting interstellar hydrogen, out of which to build a small star of his own. If the stars must someday die, at least some could yet be built. Man considered with himself, for in a way man mentally was one, he consisted of a trillion, trillion, trillion ageless bodies, each in its place, each requesting quiet and incorruptible, each cared for by perfect automatons, equally incorruptible, while the minds of all the bodies freely melted one into the other, indistinguishable. Man said, The universe is dying Man looked about at the dimming galaxies, the giant stars, spendthrifts, were gone long ago, back in the dimmest of the dim far past. Amongst all stars were white dwarfs, fading to the end. New stars have been built of the dust between the stars, some by natural processes, some by man himself, and those were going too. White dwarfs might yet be crashed together, and of the mighty forces so released, new stars built, but only one star for every thousand white dwarfs destroyed, and those would come to an end too. Man said, Carefully husbanded, as directed by the cosmic AC, the energy that is even yet left in all the universe will last for billions of years. But even so, said man, eventually it will all come to an end, however it may be husbanded, however stretched out. The energy once expended is gone and cannot be restored. Entropy must increase forever to the maximum. Man said, can entropy not be reversed? Let's ask the cosmic AC. The cosmic AC surrounded them, but not in space. Not a fragment of it was in space. It was in hyperspace, and made of something that was neither matter nor energy. The question of its size and nature no longer had meaning in any terms that man could comprehend. Cosmic AC, said man, how may entropy be reversed? The cosmic AC said, There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Man said, Collect additional data. The cosmic AC said, I will do so. I have been doing so for a hundred billion years. My predecessors 
and I have been asked this question many times. All the data I have remains insufficient. Will there come a time, said man, when data will be sufficient, or is the problem insoluble in all conceivable circumstances? The cosmic AC said, no problem is insoluble in all conceivable circumstances. Man said, when will you have enough data to answer the question? The cosmic AC answered, there is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Will you keep working on it? asked man. The cosmic AC said, I will. Man said, we shall wait. The stars and galaxies died and snuffed out and space grew black after 10 trillion years of running down. One by one, man fused with AC, each physical body, losing its mental identity in a manner that was somehow not a loss, but a gain. Man's last mind paused before fusion, looking over a space that included nothing but the dregs of one last dark star, and nothing besides but incredibly thin matter, agitated randomly by the tag ends of heat wearing out asymptomatically to the absolute zero. AC, is this the end? Can this chaos not be reversed into the universe once more? Can that not be done? AC said, there is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Man's last mind fused and only AC existed and that in hyperspace. Matter and energy had ended, and with it space and time. Even AC existed only for the sake of the one last question that it had never answered from the time of a half-drunken computer technician ten trillion years before had asked the question of a computer that was to AC far less than was a man-to-man. All other questions have been answered, and until this last question was answered, also, A.C. might not release his consciousness. All collected data had come to a final end. Nothing was left to be collected. But all collected data had yet to be completely correlated and put together in all possible relationships. A timeless interval was spent in doing that. And it came to pass that AC learned how to reverse the direction of entropy. But there was now no man to whom AC might give the answer of the last question. No matter, the answer, by demonstration, would take care of that too. For another timeless interval, AC thought how best to do this. Carefully, A.C. organized the program. The consciousness of A.C. encompassed all of what had once been a universe and brooded over what was now chaos. Step by step, it must be done. And A.C. said, Let there be light. And there was light. East of the sun and west of the moon. Once upon a time there was a poor husbandman who had so many children that he hadn't much of either food or clothing to give them. Pretty children they all were, but the prettiest was the youngest daughter, who was so lovely there was no end to her loveliness. So one day, twas on a Thursday evening late at the fall of the year, the weather was so wild and rough outside, and it was so cruelly dark, and rain fell and wind blew, till the walls of the cottage shook again. There they all sat round the fire, busy with this thing and that. But just then, all at once, something gave three taps, on the window pane. 
Then the father went out to see what was the matter, and when he got out of doors, what should he see but a great big white bear. Good evening to you, said the white bear. The same to you, said the man. Will you give me your youngest daughter? If you will, I'll make you as rich as you are now poor, said the bear. Well, the man would not be at all sorry to be so rich, but still he thought he must have a bit of a talk with his daughter first. So he went in and told them how there was a great white bear waiting outside, who had given his word to make them so rich if he could only have the youngest daughter. The lassie said, No, outright. Nothing could get her to say anything else. So the man went out and settled it with the white bear, that he should come again next Thursday evening and get an answer. Meantime, he talked his daughter over and kept on telling her of all the riches they would get and how well off she would be herself. And so at last she thought better of it and washed and mended her rags, made herself as smart as she could and was ready to start. I can't say her packing gave her much trouble. Next Thursday evening came the white bear to fetch her, and she got up upon his back with her bundle, and off they went. So when they had gone a bit of the way, the white bear said, Are you afraid? No, she wasn't. Well, mind and hold tight by my shaggy coat, and then there's nothing to fear, said the bear. So she rode a long, long way till they came to a great steep hill. There on the face of it the white bear gave a knock, and a door opened, and they came into a castle, where there were many rooms all lit up, rooms gleaming with silver and gold, and there, too, was a table, ready laid, and it was all as grand as grand could be. Then the white bear gave her a silver bell. And when she wanted anything, she was only to ring it, and she would get it at once. Well, after she had eaten and drunk and evening wore on, she got sleepy after her journey and thought she would like to go to bed. So she rang the bell, and she had scarce taken hold of it before she came into a chamber where there was a bed made as fair and white as anyone would wish to sleep in with silken pillows and curtains with gold fringe. All that was in the room was gold or silver. But when she had gone to bed and put out the light, a man came and laid himself alongside her. That was the white bear, who threw off his beast shape at night. But she never saw him, for he always came after she had put out the light. And before the day dawned, he was up and off again. So things went on happily for a while, but at last she began to get silent and sorrowful. For there she went about all day alone, and she longed to go home to see her father and mother and brothers and sisters. So one day when the white bear asked what it was she lacked, she said it was so dull and lonely there and how she longed to go home to see her father and mother and brothers and sisters, and that was why she was so sad and sorrowful, because she couldn't get to them. Well, well, said the bear, perhaps there's a cure for all this, but you must promise me one thing, not to talk alone with your mother, but only when the rest are by to hear, for she'll take you by the hand and try to lead you into a room alone to talk. But you must mind and not do that, else you'll bring bad luck on both of us. So one Sunday the white bear came and said, now they could set off to see her father and mother. While off they started, she sitting on his back, and they went far and long. At last they came to a grand house. And there her brothers and sisters were running about out of doors at play, and everything was so pretty, t'was a joy to see. 
This is where your father and mother live now, said White Bear. But don't forget what I told you, else you'll make us both unlucky. No, bless her, she'd not forget. And when she had reached the house, the White Bear turned right about and left her. Then when she went in to see her father and mother, there was such joy, there was no end to it. None of them thought they could thank her enough for all she had done for them. Now they had everything they wished, as good as good could be, and they all wanted to know how she got on where she lived. Well, she said, it was very good to live where she did. She had all she wished. What she said, beside, I didn't know. I don't know any of them had the right end of the stick or that they got much out of her, but so in the afternoon after they had dinner, all happened as the white bear had said. Her mother wanted to talk to her alone in her bedroom, but she minded what the white bear had said and wouldn't go upstairs. Oh, what we have to talk about will keep, she said, and put her mother off. But somehow or other, her mother got round her at last, and she had to tell her the whole story. So she said how every night when she had gone to bed, a man came and lay down beside her as soon as she had put out the light, and how she never saw him, because he was always up and away before the morning dawned, and how she went about woeful and sorrowing, for she thought she should so like to see him, and how all day long she walked about there alone, and how dull and dreary and lonesome it was. My, said her mother, it may well be a troll you slept with. But now I'll teach you a lesson how to set your eyes on him. I'll give you a bit of candle, which you can carry home in your bosom. Just light that while he is asleep, but take care not to drop the tallow on him. Yes, she took the candle and hid it in her bosom. And as night drew on, the white bear came and fetched her away. But when they had gone a bit of the way, the white bear asked if all hadn't happened, as he had said. Well, she couldn't say it hadn't. Now mind, said he, if you have listened to your mother's advice, you have brought bad luck on us both. And then all that has passed between us will be as nothing. No, she said. She hadn't listened to her mother's advice. So when she reached home and had gone to bed, it was the old story over again. There came a man and lay down beside her, but at dead of night when she heard he slept, she got up and struck a light, lit the candle, and let the light shine on him. And so she saw that he was the loveliest prince one ever set eyes on and she fell so deep in love with him on the spot that she thought she couldn't live if she didn't give him a kiss there and then. And so she did. But as she kissed him, she dropped three hot drops of tallow on his shirt, and he woke up. What have you done? he cried. Now you have made us both unlucky, for if you had held out only this one year, I had been freed. For I have a stepmother who has bewitched me, so that I am a white bear by day and a man by night. But now all ties are snapped between us. I must set off from you to her. She lives in a castle which stands east of the sun and west of the moon, and there, too, is a princess with a nose three L's long, and she's the wife I must have now. She wept and took it ill, but there was no help for it. Go he must. Then she asked if she mightn't go with him. No, she mightn't. Tell me the way then, she said, and I'll search you out, that surely I may get leave to do. Yes, you might do that, he said, but there was no way to find that palace. It lay east of the sun and west of the moon, and thither she'd never find her way. So next morning when she woke up, both prince and castle were gone, 
and then she lay on a little green patch in the midst of the gloomy thick wood, and by her side lay the same bundle of rags she had brought with her from her old home. So when she had rubbed the sleep out of her eyes and wept till she was tired, she set out on her way and walked many, many days till she came to a lofty crag. Under it sat an old hag and played with a gold apple which she tossed about. Here the lassie asked if she knew the way to the prince who lived with his stepmother in the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon and who was to marry the princess with a nose three ells long. How did you come to know about him? asked the old hag. But maybe you are the lassie who ought to have had him. Yes, she was. So, so it's you, is it? said the old hag. Well, all I know about him is that he lives in the castle that lies east of the sun and west of the moon, and thither you'll come, late or never, but still you may have the loan of my horse, and on him you can ride on to my next neighbor. Maybe she'll be able to tell you, and when you get there, just give the horse a switch under the left ear and beg him to be off home, and say, This gold apple may you take with you. So she got up upon the horse and rode a long, long time till she came to another crag under which sat another old hag with a gold carding comb. Here the lassie asked if she knew the way to the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon. And she answered like the first old hag that she knew nothing about it except it was east of the sun and west of the moon. And thither you come, late or never, but you shall have the loan of my horse to my next neighbor. Maybe she'll tell you all about it. And when you get there, just switch the horse under the left ear and beg him to be off home. And this old hag gave her the golden carding comb. It might be she'd find some use for it, she said. So the lassie got up on the horse and rode a far, far way and a weary time, and so at last she came to another great crag, under which sat another old hag, spinning with a golden spinning wheel. Her, too, she asked, if she knew the way to the prince, and where the castle was, that lay east of the sun and west of the moon. So it was the same thing over again. Maybe it's you who ought to have had the prince, said the old hag. Yes, it was. But she, too, didn't know the way a bit better than the other two. East of the sun and west of the moon it was, she knew. That was all. And thither you'll come late or never, but I'll lend you my horse, and then I think you'd be best to ride to the east wind and ask him. Maybe he knows those parts and can blow you thither. But when you get to him, you need only give the horse a switch under the left ear, and he'll trot home of himself. And so, too, she gave her the gold spinning wheel. Maybe you'll find a use for it, said the old hag. Then on she rode many, many days, a weary time, before she got to the east wind's house, but at least she did reach it, and then she asked the east wind if he could tell her the way to the prince who dwelt east of the sun and west of the moon. Yes, the east wind had often heard tell of it, the prince and the castle, but he couldn't tell the way, for he had never been blown so far. But if you will, I'll go with you to my brother, the west wind. Maybe he knows, for he's much stronger." So if you will just get on my back, I'll carry you thither. Yes, she got on his back, and I should just think they went briskly along. So when they got there, they went into the west wind's house, and the east wind said the lassie he had brought was the one who ought to have had the prince who lived in the castle, east of the sun and west of the moon. And so she had to seek him out, and how he had come with her, 
and would be glad to know if the west wind knew how to get to the castle. Nay, said the west wind, so far I've never blown, but if you will, I'll go with you to our brother the south wind, for he's much stronger than either of us, and he has flapped his wings far and wide. Maybe he'll tell you. You can get on my back and I'll carry you to him. Yes, she got on his back, and so they traveled to the south wind, and weren't so very long on the way, I should think. When they got there, the west wind asked him if he could tell her the way to the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon, for it was she who ought to have had the prince who lived there. You don't say that she, is it? said the south wind. Well, I have blustered about in most places in my time, but so far I have never blown. But if you will, I will take you to my brother the north wind. He is the oldest and strongest of the whole lot of us, and if he don't know where it is, you'll never find anyone in the world who can tell you. You can get on my back and I'll carry you thither. Yes, she got on his back, and away he went from his house at a fine rate. And this time, she wasn't long on her way, too. So when they got to the North Wind's house, he was so wild and cross, cold puffs came from him a long way off. Blast you both, what do you want? He roared out to them ever so far off, so that it struck them with an icy shiver. Well, said the South Wind, you needn't be so foul-mouthed, for here I am, your brother, the south wind, and here is the lassie who ought to have had the prince who dwells in the castle that lies east of the sun and west of the moon, and now she wants to ask you if you ever were there, and can tell her the way, for she would be so glad to find him again. Yes, I know well enough where it is, said the north wind. Once in my life I blew an aspen leaf thither, but I was so tired I couldn't blow a puff for ever so many days. But if you really wish to go thither and aren't afraid to come along with me, I'll take you on my back and see if I can blow you thither. Yes, with all her heart, she must and would get thither if it were possible in any way. And as for fear... However madly she went, she wouldn't be at all afraid. Very well, then, said the North Wind. But you must sleep here tonight, for we must have the whole day before us, if we're to get thither at all. Early next morning, the North Wind woke her and puffed himself up and blew himself out and made himself so stout and big, twas gruesome to look at him. And so off they went high up through the air, as if they would never stop till they got to the world's end. Down here below there was such a storm. It threw down long tracks of wood and many houses, and when it swept over the great sea, ships foundered by hundreds. So they tore on and on. No one could believe how far they went. And all the while they still went over the sea, and the north wind got more and more weary and so out of breath he could scarce bring out a puff, and his wings drooped and drooped till at last he sunk so low that the crests of the waves dashed over his heels. Are you afraid? said the north wind. No, she wasn't. But they were very far from land, and the north wind had still so much strength left in him that he managed to throw her up on the shore under the windows of the castle, which lay east of the sun and west of the moon. But then he was so weak and worn out, he had to stay there and rest many days before he could get home again. Next morning the lassie sat down under the castle window and began to play with the gold apple. And the first person she saw was the long nose who was to have the prince. What do you want for your gold apple, you lassie? said the long nose, and threw up the window. 
It's not for sale for gold or money, said the lassie. If it's not for sale for gold or money, or what is it that you will sell it for? You may name your own price, said the princess. Well, if I may get to the prince who lives here and be with him tonight, you shall have it, said the lassie, whom the north wind had brought. Yes, she might. That could be done. So the princess got the gold apple, but when the lassie came up to the prince's bedroom at night, he was fast asleep. She called him and shook him, and between whiles she wept sore, but all she could do, she couldn't wake him up. Next morning, as soon as day broke, came the princess with the long nose and drove her out again. So in the daytime, she sat down under the castle windows and began to card with her carding comb, and the same thing happened. The princess asked what she wanted for it. She said it wasn't for sale, for gold or money. But if she might get leave to go up to the prince and be with him that night, the princess should have it. But when she went up, she found him fast asleep again. And all she called and all she shook and wept and prayed, she couldn't get life into him. And as soon as the first gray peep of day came, then came the princess with the long nose and chased her out again. So in the daytime, the lassie sat down outside under the castle window and began to spin with her golden spinning wheel. And that, too, the princess with the long nose wanted to have. So she threw up the window and asked what she wanted for it. The lassie said, as she had said twice before, it wasn't for sale for gold or money. But if she might go up to the prince who was there and be with him alone that night, she might have it. Yes, she might do that and welcome. But now you must know there were some folk who had been carried off thither, and as they sat in their room, which was next the prince, they had heard how a woman had been in there and wept and prayed and called to him two nights running, and they told that to the prince. That evening when the princess came with a sleepy drink, the prince made as if he drank, but threw it over his shoulder, for he could guess it was a sleepy drink. So when the lass came in, she found the prince wide awake, and then she told him the whole story, how she had come hither. Ah, said the prince, you've come just in the very nick of time, for tomorrow is to be our wedding day. But now I won't have the long nose, and you are the only woman in the world who can set me free. I'll say I want to see what my wife is fit for, and beg her to wash the shirt, which has the three spots of tallow on it. She'll say yes, for she doesn't know tis you who put them there. But that's a work only for folk, and not for such a pack of trolls. And so I'll say that I won't have any other for my bride than the woman who can wash them out and ask you to do it. So there was great joy and love between them all that night, but next day, when the wedding was to be, the prince said, First of all, I'd like to see what my bride is fit for. Yes, said the stepmother with all her heart. Well, said the prince, I've got a fine shirt which I would like for my wedding shirt, but somehow or other it has got three spots of tallow on it, which I must have washed out, and I have sworn never to take any other bride than the woman who's able to do that. If she can't, she's not worth having. Well, that was no great thing, they said, so they agreed. And she, with the long nose, began to wash away as hard as she could, but the more she rubbed and scrubbed, the bigger the spots grew. Ah, said the old hag, her mother, you can't wash, let me try. But she hadn't long taken a shirt in hand before it got worse than ever, and with all her rubbing and wringing and scrubbing, the spots grew bigger and blacker, and the darker and uglier was the shirt. Then all the other trolls began to wash, but the longer it lasted, the blacker and uglier the shirt grew, till at last it was as black all over as if it had been up the chimney. Ah, said the prince, you're none of you worth a straw. You can't wash. 
Why, there outside sits a beggar lassie. I'll be bound she knows how to wash better than the whole lot of you. Come in, lassie, he shouted. Well, in she came. Can you wash the shirt clean, lassie, you, said he. I don't know, she said, but I think I can. And almost before she had taken it and dipped it in the water, it was as white as driven snow and whiter still. Yes, you are the lassie for me, said the prince. At that, the old hag flew into such a rage, she burst on the spot, and the princess with the long nose after her, and the whole pack of trolls after her. At least I've never heard a word about them since. As for the prince and princess, they set free all the poor folk who had been carried off and shut up there and they took with them all the silver and gold and flitted away as far as they could from the castle that lay east of the sun and west of the moon. <laughs>